Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel listeners, whatever time of the day it is anywhere in the world. Today, it's a great pleasure to welcome Tessa Clark onto the show. Tessa, how are you? Very good, thank you. And I'm also here with Keeman. Keeman, do you want to say hi to our audience? Hi, everybody. Again, from Krakow, no change and, here. And now, what we know about Tessa is that she's the CEO and leader of Olio or Olio. I think you told me Olio's best, or is it Olio? <laughs> I call it Olio, but to be perfectly honest, as long as people are talking about us, then I'm fine whether it's Olio yeah. or Olio. Yeah, and uh, Olio's uh, the leading app in the world for sharing food. But I think, Tessa, you're going to do a better job of introducing yourself than we will. So why don't you do that for us? I will happily do that. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, Olio is an app that exists to tackle the problem of food waste in the home. And we do that by connecting people to their neighbours so that you can give away rather than throw away your spare food. And how it works is really simple. It takes about 10 seconds to snap a photo and add your food to the app. Neighbours living nearby get an alert, letting them know that something new has been added. They can browse the listings, request what they want, and then pop round and pick it up. So it's really important to stress that Olio is all about connecting you with your immediate neighbours. Mm-hmm. And and it's and it, and it sounds great, but it's not just it sounds great from the perspective of you, the founder. This has achieved great popularity, hasn't it? Is, is, is am, I, am I right in saying it's number one in the world? Because I'm just assuming it. <laughs> do, do no, that, that, that's a correct assumption. So um, it sounds like your question is, so does it really work? Uh, and the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, so we have had 2.8 million people join us. About three quarters of the audience are in the UK, but about a quarter come from elsewhere. And we have had over 12 million portions of food successfully shared via the app. So it's, congratulations! It's a it's a it's a huge. You, you, so do, let's do, just let's talk, let's talk about it a little bit just to better understand how they're like. So I'm like I download the app and mm-hmm. I and I, I I realize I don't know I'm going away or I just got too much of something and so then is it, is it so it's basically it's it's is it neighborhood based is it GPS like they know you it knows where you are so that yeah. your local people get it how, how does it how do you make how does it work uh, yeah. actually so so let, let's start off with sort of when would you be wanting to use it so um now is we're sort of just the end of January coming into February. So we've had an awful lot of people who are doing New Year's resolutions. They're sort of changing their diets. Perhaps they're doing Veganuary uh, or they're cutting out carbs or whatever else they might be doing. Uh, you might be having a cupboard clear out. You might decide that you want to eat in tonight. Uh, sorry, get a takeaway tonight instead of cooking. You might have received some unwanted food gifts. You might just be doing a cupboard clear out. For whatever reason, you've got food that you don't want or need. And then you add it to the app. And then the key thing is that it is your neighbors or people who live close to you who are alerted. So it's all about uh, connecting pe- you with people in your immediate community. Because what we've discovered is that people hate throwing away food. And the reason they do it is actually because they don't have anyone to give that food to. 
because we are no longer connected to our local communities anymore. And so Olio is providing you with a really safe, easy and convenient way to be able to find someone to give your food to who wants it or sadly, unfortunately, in this day and age might even need it. I, I, I can't <laughs> I can't tell you how much this speaks to me. This is an ongoing issue I have with my wife. I have to I'm, I'm embarrassed. We throw away way too much uh, food. So that's an issue for me. And then the second issue I have is I'm totally not connected. One of my biggest regrets, and I don't know if I've, I've had this conversation lots of times, Richard, I don't know how much you feel it is a disconnect with my neighbors and my neighborhood in general. I mean, I, I don't know how much of it's a Polish cultural thing where I've been living or whether it's I'm in a city. I mean, cause I've Richard and I've been here, I've been here for like 30 years, but like, if you can like, I, I, I see it. So it's really like a hidden added value. This um, you're connecting people to their communities. Yeah. It I think like it might actually be like the, the extra, whatever the secret sauce almost. It, it is. So, so um, you've sort of highlighted two things that aren't immediately apparent at Olio when you, so sign up and open the app. The first is just how strong the demand for the food is. So you might be thinking, well, is anyone really going to want my head of broccoli or these two random lemons or three tins of out of date soup? And the answer is a resounding yes. Half of all the food added to the app is requested within 24 minutes. So wow. our challenge is encouraging people who have spare food to give it away rather than throw it away. And to indicate the scale of the food waste problem in our homes, the typical British family throws away 730 pounds sterling of perfectly good food every year that could have been eaten. That collectively adds up to 14 billion pounds of essentially all our own hard work and money is going into landfill uh, where it uh, creates a, a climate travesty quite frankly so um there's definitely an opportunity for someone such as yourself who finds themselves with too much food to really efficiently and effectively give it away and then the second thing that you don't realize just by looking at the app is that the beating heart of olio is not in fact an app it's the community of people who are connected yes, by the that's app. what i suspect and so yeah people tell us that they join olio because they hate waste yeah. They keep using Olio because they've met a neighbor, they've made friends, they feel safer in their local community because they actually know who their neighbors are. And yeah. we hear amazing stories multiple times a day of just small everyday acts of human kindness that are taking place between Olioers. And we hear the phrase that Olio has sort of restored my faith in humanity or it's a beacon of light. Yes, And that's actually not Olio. We're just connecting human beings and allowing them to be good neighbors to one another. And you're connecting them on something very base, the food. Food, right? yeah. Food, food is something, it's, it's a very universal. <laughs> there right. isn't anybody <laughs> You don't who have religion or politics food. or no. uh, anything like that in food. But uh, what about, like, one of my, I, like, I don't want to go into my issues too much, but I'm just personally fascinated with, like, I have too much uh, cooked food. Yep. Like I end up throwing like that's like that's the really the biggest bummer to me is yeah. stuff that's so there's two things cooked food mm -hmm. which is not something that I which is way more personal and I don't know if there's an element of risk or whatever it's like somebody's mm -hmm. um, recipe basically I might not yep. like it yeah and then like 
What about stuff that like my wife's like, no, you can't have it after the um, expiration date for the yeah. kids, right? I'm like, no, that's BS, whatever. But anyway, we're not allowed to have it after the expiration date. So that's another one where Okay, I well let, let me take each of those in turn. <laughs> we're gonna dissect the Fontaquita we're gonna dissect yeah, the Fontaquita's house. Well. <laughs> I'm just personally fascinated with this. Like actually I, I knew I was gonna be when you came on that I was gonna be like totally into this. But anyway. So let so let let's take the home cooked food. So the majority of food that's being showed on, shared on the app is not home-cooked food. It's, so it's not prepared. It's generally ingredients and cupboards and store items. However, we absolutely do have people sharing home-cooked food via the app. And in particular, last year, we ran several campaigns actively encouraging our community to do that. The first one was when we went into lockdown and the schools were closed and we realized that 1.3 million school children were, as of that Monday morning, were no longer going to have access to that critical school lunch. And so we thought, well, what can we do about this? Why don't we galvanize our community and get them preparing and cooking school lunches? And so we launched a campaign called hashtag cook for kids. And then two weeks later, we rolled that out and applied it to be hashtag cook for carers. And we've had over 30,000 meals shared in that way. And for so many families, that was a critical lifeline, access to food when they wouldn't have otherwise had it. And what better than home cooked and home prepared food? The second um, question that you had, which is about dates. Dates do result in an enormous amount of confusion, and it's really important to uh, differentiate between the different types of date. So there is the use by date, and that is the health and safety date. And it's illegal for a business to sell or even to give away food after it's used by date. After midnight on that use by date, is it illegal for a business to give it away? Mm. It's not illegal for you um, or anyone in your family to give away uh, food after it's used by date. But we as a platform have taken the decision that given that that is a health and safety date, no food after it's used by date is allowed on Olio. However, the much more common date is the best before date. And that mm -hmm. just means that the food is optimal from a taste, aesthetics, composition perspective prior to that date, but that it can be safely and deliciously eaten for days, weeks, months, even years after the best before right. date. And and that the best before date is often the expiry date um, as well in, in other markets. So you have to read the fine print because I've, I've only noticed one date on those things. But maybe yeah, so ge generally if it's, if it's sort of milk, meat, fish, cooked pies, things like that, yogurts, it will tend to be a use by date. But okay. dried goods, um, sort of a lot of fruit and veg and tins and, and stuff like that that is generally a best before date i've got some cooking at the beginning of lockdown when everyone was panicking i made a mistake when i was doing uh, my <clears throat> delivery and i've got uh, six bottles of <laughs> cooking oil and i thought the date uh, and they're coming to the end and i thought the date was i don't know whether it's a best before or that a would use, be a best before date so i can give away cooking oil and for no sure one. you can yeah, because yeah. we uh, in so my, we up. can't ex ex except we can't, Richard, and that's going to be uh, that's no. Be it, ex it, 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 it's here in Krakow, Kimon. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So and we've, we've uh, had food successfully shared in fifty-eight countries so far, and that's thanks to our model of our ambassadors. So we have now over fifty thousand ambassadors. These are people who are passionate about our mission, like us. They, we believe that good food should be eaten, not thrown away, and we empower our ambassadors with 
content and tools to enable them to spread the word about Olio in their local community. So you can either become a digital ambassador, spread the word online, and or you can become a community hero. And so you can, uh, if you're in the UK, have posters, letters, flyers, etc., mailed to you. If you're uh, international, you can download them and print them off. And that is how we have expanded so rapidly internationally. And now a quarter of all the sharing that takes place every week via the app is taking place outside of the UK. Mm. With our biggest, most active markets being Mexico, Singapore, New Zealand, Channel Islands of Guernsey and Jersey have gone crazy for Olio. Uh, and there's a couple of other places. Yes, yeah, so I'm downloading the app right now. I, I can't. I can't wait. I, I had no. I did not suspect we would have it in Poland, uh, in Krakow. So, so you're using it, Richard? Did yeah. Well, I, 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 my, we were having a clear out and tried to give away some some furniture. It didn't actually work. But I was actually waiting for this conversation because I wanted to sort of, I, I wanted to brainstorm because I noticed on your website you've got a few. You've got at least one Polish person in your team, haven't you? We Tessa? have. We've actually, I think we've now got three people who are working from Krakow. Cow. So at the very least, you can probably share with, yeah. <laughs> with the other yeah. radioers. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? I, 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 until very recently, I was running a TEDx event, and we used to have quite. And obviously, TEDx is into sharing good ideas, and this would qualify completely. And we used to have things like sort of uh, online a sort of volunteer celebration event once a year where we'd get different volunteers and we might we've got quite a lot of audience here so I may well get in touch with them to see if we could do a uh, not a webinar but a, like a Facebook live or something like that just to sort of jump start it but I, the other thing is I have to be careful because uh, as Keeman has been assuming it's not here and it's not here it could be that they're being hyperactive and it's the worst thing you can possibly do to come in and say I can help you get a bit of publicity when in fact they've got tons of publicity and you know you have to uh, uh, you no have such to see- thing as too much publicity trust me okay and uh, i was going to uh, you spoke at an event i was hosting last week as you remember the audience don't and there wasn't time then because it was a very tight program to ask you about the way you manage the volunteers at scale because presumably presumably when you started this you didn't imagine you were going to have that an army of volunteers is quite a project to manage isn't it it is we from inception really volunteers have played a critical role for olio because sasha my co-founder and i had very limited financial resources to get olio launched and from pretty much the get-go we had people reaching out to us saying this is brilliant how can i help (laughs) so we called ourselves you know one or two hundred of these early volunteers and brainstormed and discussed with them what might volunteering look like and through those conversations we co-created what is now our ambassador program and I can remember sort of one of our early investors we were giving them an update about absolutely everything and we said oh yeah we've got you know 252 volunteers and she was like what that you know and one thing investors can be very good at is is sort of pattern recognition or seeing when something really unusual is happening And, and she said that is unheard of there's something really special going on there so dig deep into that and so we did we really invested a lot of time and energy to build out the materials build out the volunteering pathway create the community we've got closed facebook group uh, and we do invest pretty hard into that but it's really extremely effective because it's a high quality low cost route to market Mm. what are the very authentic as well what what are the investors responsible for so as I've said, they can either be a digital ambassador. So they, we put them on a life cycle and then give them 
content and information that they can then share through their own sort of social and digital channels or they can be a community hero and so they can order a hyper local marketing kit of posters and letters and flyers we also give them access to a volunteer hub where they can uh, be given a ton of guidance about kind of step by step what to do to grow oleo near them we give them access to boilerplate uh, press releases we have presentations that they can download for use at local community events tips and tricks about how to host a, you know, this was obviously pre-COVID, but a community potluck event, uh, all, all sorts of things so that they can, so we give them everything they need to then translate Olio in a way that's relevant to their local community. Yeah, no, right, that's actually what I was about to ask. Sorry, Richard, just one more. And then uh, uh, how do you get it? Do you do you trend that language from a language is, do you have it translated into foreign, is your app translated into foreign languages? So we... Oh, we've had people reach out to us and still do every single week offering to translate the Olio app for us, which is incredibly kind. We went, have been through the process to translate the Olio app into Spanish. And we somewhat naively thought that that would be a fairly quick and simple task. There were only, you know, at the time, 300 <laughs> lines of copy in the app. How hard can that be? But what we realized is that once you started on that process, you then have to translate every single touch point on the customer journey. And so essentially we found ourselves translating you know, five years worth of work of all of our customer support and our FAQs and our saved replies and every single notification, email, in-app message. And so we have realized what uh, an enormous organizational drag it creates. And so for the time being, we're staying very focused on markets where English is is the sort of predominant language or Spanish. Yeah, that's going to be a big uh, barrier. The reason I'm asking, this is something <clears throat> we can take offline, is uh, I, I founded one of the uh, largest translation localization companies, uh, and it's actually based here. And I'd be happy to, I'm talking free of charge. Um, I, I think you have a big crowdsourcing opportunity here. You'd have to set up a crowdsourcing way. I, I totally we, understand. We, we, your, yeah, we, we do. Yeah. It's it's something we will do, but it's a, a really yeah. significant project because every single day. Yeah, I can day imagine. I can imagine. We're requesting I know the... Spanish translations <laughs> now, 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 now. Uh, and I, it sort of fills me with dread thinking about sort of requesting. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. That, I mean, this, that's my business. So I know, I know that, I know that problem really well. But anyway, I'm, I'd be, I'd be happy. I, uh, to, uh, you, Tessa, I, I, I'm this. I mean, at the time, you're ready to take on this nightmarishly complex project. <laughs> the, 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 the fact that Akeman runs, uh, used to run, founded one of the largest localization companies in the world, yeah. is uh, is a youth. He could be a very good consultant, I, or someone. Maybe, maybe not him, agree. but someone. Yeah, in but the I'm a big fan of you. you. <laughs> so it also helps that I'm a big fan of of uh, of, of what you do as well. So yeah. uh, no, that would be, be that would be amazing. When we're ready, um, yeah. our sort of post our Series B is when we're going to be looking at internationalization okay. in earnest. At the moment, our okay. nationalization yeah. is just very very organic and low cost. Yeah. And I, uh, the question that I wanted to come in with was. was um, when you were building up this volunteer um, processes, did you have it? Because I'm coming at this from the perspective of a TEDx organizer, and TED, TED and TEDx is, a, is, is a, 
again, an enormous volunteer effort. And I was wondering whether you had anyone mentoring you or did where, did you have like an inspiration or did you, you we'll go back to your prior history. Yeah. Normally, normally our interviews, we, we start with the past and get up to the present. Okay, and I think, right. I think we're going to run, <laughs> we're going to run your life in reverse order. You can go back. The conversation proceeds. That's fine. You, you let's, get, finish, let's finish the, 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 the business story and then we can get back. Yeah, to no, so ju ju just, um, I was wondering, did you have any sort of like, um, benchmark or concept or did you just work it out from first principles that your approach to the the volunteer the volunteer setup we we worked it out from first principles because there aren't actually many slash if any organizations that we could find that were digital first and that had managed to harness volunteers as a core growth engine really and so we yeah, did everything from first principles. We did, though, look at off-the-shelf systems for managing volunteers that exist for the charitable sector, but that was like trying to fit a you know, square peg into a round hole, so we quickly mm. realised that that wasn't going to work from us. And, and we reached out and spoke to a number of large charities to, to gather their experience of, of managing volunteers, but I think, and, and took as much wisdom as we could but it, it reached the point where we just had to crack on and start implementing and, and learn and respond as quickly as we could. Mm -hmm. whilst we're so I, I have a question about the, the business model. So you mentioned a series B, so you're, you're, and you mentioned investors. So you're, you're clearly, yep. you're raising um, capital for this. Is there, is this, well, I guess, is it a nonprofit or is it? No, what, what, we are a regular company. We passionately believe that the new business paradigm with, will be profit with purpose and that we've, got ourselves caught in this quite silly sort of dichotomy where we think that you have to be a charity to do good and you have to be a business to scale and okay. the reality is that we've got to have profit with purpose to solve the planet's largest problems as quickly as possible we started generating revenues a couple of years ago through our food waste heroes program so we have um, our largest clients are companies such as tesco pret-a-manger compass catering uh, and other players like that. And we provide them with a service whereby we have thousands of volunteers who are matched up to their local stores and on their allotted time and day, the volunteer will pop out of their home across the road. They'll go to, let's say that Tesco store, pick up all of the unsold food, take it home, add it to the app. Within minutes, their neighbors are requesting it. Minutes later, the neighbors are popping around. And oh my God, it up. that's awesome. And they pay for that. Yes, because at the moment they're paying a waste contractor to take that food off to landfill or perhaps at best anaerobic digestion instead they're now paying us to ensure that, that food is fully redistributed into the homes of the local community so we've wow. built a hyper local real-time food redistribution network cool that's brilliant and and is that the only um revenue source or is there that's other... the only revenue source to date uh this year we will be introducing a freemium model so the core olio app will continue to remain for free so you will always be able to add food to the app have someone request it pick it up and that that connection will take place and it'll be free for both sides of the equation but later on this year we're going to be introducing some features that will be available for olio supporters as we will be calling them so are people who who sort of subscribe to access those features and in doing so contribute to our planet saving mission okay and I have one just personal, again, another personal question. This is something, I actually thought about something like this, uh, but in a different context. It's something that really bugged me. I was, I was, uh, I, I would never travel like this, but for some reason I was, for Christmas, I think it was after, uh, I, I, I was going to Tenerife 
and I, I wanted to, I bought the, um, I bought, I want, the cheapest way for me to get there was to buy one of these package tourism uh, things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted just the hotel on the flight and I, cause I would never stay in, so it, like I never, that's just not the way I normally travel. But like I was there and I was like, okay, let's go to like a couple of the meals. And I had never seen anything like it. There were like feedlots. There were like mm -hmm. what you would have for cattle. It was set yeah. up for human. It was just this like huge, massive amount of yeah. food. Like, and there is no way that that food was not being chucked. I mean, that was just the first thing that struck yeah. me. As, yeah. Like, what the hell? And this is, and then multiply this by I don't know how many numbers of. Um, so, is that a problem that has uh, so struck yes, you in any? <laughs> yeah. So yes, it is. It is a problem. The problem with food waste is once you open your eyes to it, you realise that it is absolutely everywhere and it's very hard to close your eyes um, afterwards which can lead to a lot of discomfort we uh, are working with compass catering which is the world's largest catering company um, who do an awful lot of uh, i think they have seven thousand locations just across the uk where they are catering and we've been talking to a number of hotel groups as well about precisely this so without a doubt our food waste heroes program is a solution to that problem and it's important to stress that we have a very robust food safety management system that sits behind everything that our, our volunteers, our food waste heroes, as we call them, do. So to ensure that they are safely collecting and redistributing that food. Right. The other point, though, that I always like to make to people is that food waste is a fraction of the food that is wasted by us in our homes. So if we take UK data, half of all food waste takes place in the home. 2% takes place at a retail store level. 8% takes place in hospitality and leisure, which is where that type of stuff that you saw would uh, be. I think there's about 13% in manufacturing, and I think we've got about 27% left, which is at the farm gate. So it's very easy to see these sort of single locations with mountains of food and assume that that is where the problem is. But it, I mean, clearly that's a problem, but that's not where the majority of the problem is. So a lot of people struggle to believe or understand or comprehend that half of all food waste takes place in the home. And the way I like to explain it to people is that in the UK, we have 28 million households throwing away just under a quarter of the weekly shop. And we have 10 or 15,000 supermarkets throwing away half a percentage point. So it's right, just that's, they're mad. more efficient. They're way more efficient. They're way more, more efficient, efficient. And there's efficient. hardly the any of them <laughs> relative to to us in our homes. Yeah. And um, that's the real problem. And then the other challenge is that a lot of people will be in their homes and they will throw away two brown bananas and think, well, you know, what difference does that make? It's just me. Problem is, there's 28 million other households lobbing two brown bananas into the bin that week. And that's how you know, every single day millions of tomatoes millions of apples millions of bananas 25 million slices of bread are thrown away by households every single day and one so of the one we of the, are the problem one of the brilliant things you're doing tester is like you're in a way you're holding up the mirror that it's much easier to criticize blame someone someone, someone yeah. else and blame someone else and i remember years ago in fact when i was at cambridge helen susman who's the anti-apartheid 
politician, um, and she was white. She was part of the centrist party between the ANC on the one side and the and the National Party on the other. Richard, so, you're not localizing very well. The Polish, the Americans, they don't know what the hell you're talking about. So, so in South Africa, there used to be apartheid, and I'm sure many of our listeners, Kimon, <laughs> have heard of apartheid. But but, but, but she, she 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 said that everyone knows about the problems in South Africa, and there are problems in South Africa. I've been dragged out of the the South African Parliament for opposing the government. Um, however, in Britain, six percent of your politician are what South Africans would classify as coloured or black. Um, this There are 700 people here in this auditorium. I don't see a single black face. And, you know, it's very powerful. It's much, and she said it's so easy for people to... So look in the mirror, look at your own waist first. And, and is that part of your sort of... Do you, do, you, do you want to make people be more self-aware? Is that part, do, you have, do you feel you've got an educational mission? We, we do have an educational mission, but we have learned that it is far more powerful to lead with hope and inspiration and positivity mm. than with sort of negativity and beating people over the head. So we do try to explain to people how big the problem of food waste is in the home and how devastating it is for the environment. But actually what we spend more of our time talking about is how fun it is mm. to connect with a neighbor, how good it feels to share. I see such massive added value. For, I mean, for me, that's a tremendous, the future, um, uh, Tessa is, uh, for Oleo, it's like the logistics. It's going to be like, are you going to become like a giant, like logistics for food waste men? Well, like, so, like, so, like just passing around. Cause I can imagine like the next, uh, a next step is how do you get it to the other, to the, you know, is it just, is there enough in the local places that people are, or is there an opportunity yeah. to transfer it to the, to the, to the needier, the needier no, places? So, so, so that, that's a really important point. So the, the beauty of Oleo is that it's, hyperlocal and also it's for everybody and that's really really important so i think where a lot of food redistribution has come up short historically is that they've tried to ensure that the food gets to someone who is needy which then takes the food through a very long very expensive logistics system which only a very okay. small amount of food can go through and it, it it does a brilliant job helping those people but it doesn't solve the food waste problem we're really, really focused on solving the food waste problem. And what we That's have discovered is that sadly, there is no shortage of needy people in every single community across the land. And so just by redistributing food hyperlocally, you will be helping people who really need that food. But the thing that's really important to note is that the sheer scale of food waste cannot be solved by hungry people. There aren't enough hungry people to eat all the food waste that we generate. And so what we really need is for this to become a way of life, a way of living. And so you sort of touched on what is the, the bigger picture of Olio. Olio really wants to reinvent consumption. Like consumption at the moment is fundamentally broken. We purchase low quality crap that's been ripped out of the ground many many thousand miles away shipped to us we use it for about five percent of its useful life we toss it into landfill and we rinse wash and repeat and we are living as if we have 1.75 planets and we don't uh, and the oleo sort of vision of consumption is to take it away from that very impersonal extractive wasteful model and instead have a local sustainable meaningful model of consumption and let's utilize what we already have in our local communities so there is no shortage of um, stuff being given away on olio but 
as we go into uh, so Olio connects people to give away both food but also non-food items as well. Okay. And so the typical uh, American household, by the way, has three hundred thousand things in it. <laughs> typical European home probably mm -hmm. isn't that far behind. They are the world's precious resources trapped in your home. Many people are like, oh, I want to get rid of the clutter. Meanwhile, someone two doors down is buying the same stuff, brand new, because they want it. And so we, we just need that. We want to kind of build that infrastructure to redistribute resources at a local community level. And uh, in a few months' time, we'll be using everything that we've built to also allow people within the Olio app to lend and borrow items amongst cool. each other even better more savings wow that's brilliant yeah totally because um and once you why do i that, need to buy um, that drill to use it for 10 yeah, minutes that exactly. lawnmower to use it for half an exactly. hour that pasta maker to use it once right it's but the key is that community it's that community yeah. you've created the community if you have if you have a working community um that's used to passing and sharing things with food what a great way to start it then you can mm -hmm. just expand that to so many different things i, yeah. this is, I think that's a and, and the important thing is and and covid obviously has been a massive accelerant of this because actually now so many of us are now uh working and living in our local community and so we are craving an opportunity to get to meet our neighbors in a way that isn't kind of weird and uncomfortable and actually just sharing or giving away or lending or borrowing items via a platform such as Olio is a really, really great way to connect you to your local neighborhood. And, you know, it, it's something nice and fun to do to pop out the house for 15 minutes to go across the road to borrow something or pick something up or have someone pop around. Okay, so Tessa, the, the main thing that we do, we haven't even touched on on this because you have such a cool and interesting, uh, 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 basically, service and product um, that you've created is, but we're, we, what we really love to do here is we're fascinated in the people themselves, basically you, and yep. how did you get here? And, and how, because, you know, we, we think it's so interesting, like what makes people entrepreneurs? And we, you know, and you know, because it's it's a crazy, it's, as you know yourself, it's a crazy road. And so, can, can you just start from the beginning? Like I, I remember yeah. in the in the um, when I watched your presentation online, uh, I, you were a far, working in a farm. You you came from yeah. a farming background, so maybe you can just tell us a yeah. little bit about where 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 you how you started out. Yes, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that I never aspired to be an entrepreneur. I didn't really necessarily know what one was. I didn't know anything about business. I had one role model growing up, which was farming, uh, because I lived on a pretty isolated family farm in North Yorkshire, so in the northeast of the UK. And I learned a lot, though, through that upbringing that's been hugely instructional to getting me to where I am today. The first thing is when you work really, really hard as a kid to produce food, funnily enough, you grow up hating <laughs> food waste, um, but also you grow up with a keen appreciation for um, how human beings sort of coexist with nature and just that very kind of delicate balance and ecosystem. And so I think that's where my passion around solving the climate crisis has really come from. And I think also growing up on a farm, nothing ever goes right on a farm. I mean, everything is out of your control. You're dealing with animals, you're dealing with the weather, you're dealing with a whole bunch of monopolies that control the price of your inputs and your outputs. So you are constantly problem solving on a farm. Uh, and I think but that it's that's also entrepreneurial, isn't it? Isn't well, it, it, it is. Yeah. At the, again, at the time, uh, I didn't recognize that um, <laughs> because it, it was just a way of life. Now, again, sort of 
being a startup founder, it's the same thing, right? It, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's just a way of life. Um, so yeah, so that, that was my upbringing. I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do when I left the family farm. I knew that I didn't want to be a farmer. Um, so I went to Cambridge, actually, uh, to study social and political sciences. So I've always been very fascinated, I guess, by um, human beings and, and social and cultural and economic sort of constructs and stuff like that. Still had no clue what I wanted to do. So went off and became a strategy consultant, which is a great first job for someone who doesn't know what they want to do. After a couple of years of that, I realized that I actually wanted to do something rather than just advise and create fancy excels and powerpoints and so then i moved into sort of industry and spent the next sort of 10 plus years working in media financial services and also retail always in the digital space and always in a general management capacity uh, i think the thing We're getting experienced so getting lots and lots and lots of experience a lot of experience what i look at my journey i started off with a FTSE 100 you know once i'd left consulting with a FTSE 100 company then I went to Dyson, which at the time was probably about 15 years old. Uh, and then I went to a tech startup that was probably about seven years old, um, but a unicorn. And then Olio was sort of starting right back at zero. I think it was very instructional to understand how an organization looks and operates at scale and throughout that life cycle journey. So that when you're then building the foundations, I can always be mindful of things to make sure we embed or things to to avoid also people skills I mean, there's so many things yeah. you learn that you can't um exactly quantify i mean how yeah. to negotiate or how to fire somebody totally. or how totally. to, i mean there's just like a million details that you probably yeah. learn and, and i think sort of sasha and i so I, we're a female founded business we have between us we've, we had 40 years of business experience so we, we definitely considered ourselves sort of atypical entrepreneurs just by virtue of our gender uh, and then also we we were kind of a little bit older you know, we both had kids when we found our businesses. But I do think, and we've sort of kept probably about 50% of what we learned from the corporate world. There's some stuff that works really well, weekly one-on-ones, 360 feedback, personal development plans. There are, there are things that are really important that the corporate world does really well. But then I think we felt like we were throwing off the shackles of a lot of sort of bureaucracy and crap that we could sort of get rid of when building around. Let's go back to the origin story. So how did you meet Sasha and what made you do this? I mean, how how did it actually? So uh, Sasha and I met studying for our MBAs at Stanford Business School 15 years ago now. So Sasha uh, is from, her parents were hippie, entrepreneurs in the midwest of america maybe yeah. share her share her surname because yes, that's part of the <laughs> yeah so sasha's surname is celestial one oh nice which beautiful. is a, it's a beautiful beautiful name it's a great piece of uh, personal branding by her parents yes. uh, and it's always quite fun checking us in at sort of fantasy says, i have to ask why it's not bigger in the u.s it, 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 like i just can't see how this wouldn't be you said a quarter and maybe it is big in the u.s but yeah. you said three quarters if you've got your co-founder american and like this i was Wait, thinking the whole time you were talking how good this would be for american market it will but, it will be we're just not yeah. ready to do that properly yet right okay so yeah um so sasha and i met 15 years ago at Stanford, both moved back to London uh, and became part of this kind of social group that were wildly irresponsible in our 20s, kind of vaguely settled down in our 30s. We were the best of friends. Uh, the light bulb moment, if you like, for Olio took place six years ago now. So I was living and working with my family in Switzerland and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, 
the removal men said to me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, <laughs> clearly, given my uh, farming background, I was not prepared to do that. So much to their irritation, I stopped packing and instead bundled my, at the time, newborn baby and toddler and set out onto the streets, clutching the kids plus this food, hoping to find someone to give this food to. And to cut a long story short, the lady who was always there in her usual spot for whatever reason that day was not there so i got a bit over emotional i cried because i've gone to all this effing effort to try and share this food and had failed i thought about knocking on my neighbor's doors and realized i didn't have time for that i had the removal guys waiting for me and even if they were in it would be awkward and embarrassing they might not i mean that's just a bit weird right um because i didn't know my neighbors so as i was smuggling the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes in my kitchen when the guys weren't looking i thought this is crazy. I'm probably sort of performing a criminal offence right now. But to me, it feels equally criminal, if not more so, to put perfectly good food in the rubbish bin when I know that there is someone probably less than 100 metres from me who would like to have it. So that was the kind of light bulb moment of, I knew there's an app for everything. Why isn't there a simple app that connects with my neighbors to give away my spare food? I told a few people about this idea of a neighbour to neighbour food sharing app. Most people thought that you know, I sort of should probably get off maternity leave and go back to work because baby brain was getting the better of me. Uh, but Sasha uh, did not. I, I pitched her this idea of a neighbor's neighbor food sharing app. We spent about one hour doing a mini MBA on it. And we both realized that it needs to be solved. It needs to be solved at scale as a matter of urgency. And we couldn't see anyone else doing it. And so we committed to committed to launching Olio. And so then what happens? Like, I'm well, like, the first thing then we what did, happens? Yeah, so the first thing we did was research the problem of food. So we were pretty methodical in terms of how, methodical but fast. So the first thing we did was research the problem of food waste. And what we discovered absolutely shocked, horrified us and put some serious fire in our bellies. So we discovered that globally a third of all the food produced each year gets thrown away, which is worth over a trillion US dollars. Alongside that, we have 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night. So that's one in nine of us who could be fed on a quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And then as if all that weren't bad enough, the environmental impact of food waste is absolutely devastating. If it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And that's where we are today. We have another 2.2 billion people joining us by 2050. To feed us all, according to the FAO, we need to increase global food production by 50%. Today, we have no idea how we're going to achieve that. And so we are living on the cusp of pivoting from being in a world in which we are awash with food right now to living in a world in which there is no longer enough food for all of us. So that felt like we were sort of waking up in the middle of a dystopian nightmare. We could not believe that people weren't sort of screaming from the rooftops about this problem. And then to discover that in a country like the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. On the one hand, that can be incredibly depressing. Oh shit, we're half of that problem that right. I've just described. But if you flip it on its head, it can be incredibly exciting and empowering. Hang on a minute. That means that we can be half the solution to that problem. Mm -hmm. So that was, we did that research pretty quickly to kind of piece together the story of what's really happening in the world. We then recognized that just because it's a big problem for the world doesn't mean to say it's a problem that anyone cares about. So we created a market research survey, shared it via lots of Facebook groups. And the key data point that we got coming out of that was that one in three people told us that they were physically pained throwing away good food. And we use deliberately extreme language of physically pain to filter out for that the sort of false positive because most people probably go, yeah, food waste is bad. 
one in three people said, I am physically paying for any good food. So we, that was a tick in the box. This is a mainstream problem. But we still had a core hypothesis that we had to test out before we invested all of our life savings, basically building an app that, quite frankly, no one might want. And the core hypothesis was that people would share their food with a stranger. And so we tested that using WhatsApp. We invited 12 people who did that market research survey who said they were physically paying for throwing away for good food. They all lived close to each other, didn't know each other, didn't know us. And we asked them, organized it all via email and said, we're just gonna pop you in a WhatsApp group for two weeks. Here's a group of people. If you've got spare food, go for it, knock yourselves out. And we waited with bated breath for, I think- Were they geographically close, close. to each other? Yeah, so they were okay. all in sort yeah. of in, uh, in Crouch End in, yeah. in North London, which is where Sasha lived. And yeah, we waited for 24, 36 hours. We had our first share take place via the WhatsApp group and then multiple shares took place over that next two weeks. We then debriefed face-to-face -face and met all of those people, which was a really surreal experience in, in random coffee shops. And they basically told us three things. They said, one, you have to build this. Two, it only has to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group, which is probably the most valuable advice we've been given on the journey so far. <laughs> and three, they said, how can I help? And that was the genesis of our ambassador program. So we then, so it took us sort of five months to the day from starting work on this, incorporating the company to getting the first version of the app launched in the app store. And the reason why we did that so fast was because- So who did this? I mean, you must've had some money. I mean, you, so you put some money into this. You we put, put a little bit of this. money in, but how we afforded that was we found an agency in Bristol. So we went for an agency that's outside of London because we knew it would automatically be 30% cheaper. Uh, and then they were prepared to work on half price day rates in exchange for a small equity stake when we did our first raise. So that ah. we kind of did it for half price. So that made it affordable for us. So whilst we were, pounding the pavements in North London, getting people to sign up. So we got you know, two and a half, I think, thousand people sign up to be notified on pen and paper when the Olio app was launched. They were building the app. Sorry, I need to ask parallel. about this just to understand. Yeah. You're pounding the pavement. This is the kind of stuff I love. Uh, yeah. And so, so there, you didn't have an app. We didn't so have how, an app. What do you mean you were pounding? So, and then, so, so, so what we, we would go so to local, How did you get these two? <laughs> so we would go to local uh, retailers. We would yeah. ask them for their spare... Um, fruit, veg, and bakery products. We would then get a table. We would stand on the high street with our babies in buggies, yelling out loud about, um, do you hate food waste? Join the food sharing revolution. And people would come over and talk to us. We'd explain what we were doing. And then we would get their email address for- Okay, because I'm sorry, Richard, this is, this is the stuff. This is the stuff. This is the stuff that normal people don't do. <laughs> <laughs> It's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's super yeah. impressive. It's, it's great and determination. So, and... so we knew that we needed, we knew we were building a two-sided marketplace. We knew it had to be geographically constrained. We knew we had to match supply and demand. And so we knew we had to have a whole bunch of people to tell about the Olio app who all lived in uh, five postcodes, basically in North London is what we restricted it to. And then those 12 people who did the WhatsApp group, they had said, how can I help? And we said, well, hey, you can become ambassadors and we're going to let you know when this app launches. Please, can you raid your cupboards and make sure you put loads of food on the app so it's there and waiting on launch day? And then we sort of watched as we had like an ambassador to ambassador swap and then an ambassador to stranger swap. And then our first stranger to stranger swap, swap which was just a very magical So how long moment. did it take to build the app? Um, I think we probably started building the app I can't remember, maybe May, 
and launched it in July. Oh, wow, that's impressive. But well, we were very, uh, as I said, the best advice we received was that it only needs to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group. I'd also read The Lean Startup uh, and totally kind of drunk the Kool-Aid on that methodology. And so prior to doing the proof of concept with the WhatsApp group, we had assumed we're connecting neighbors or strangers to share food. Surely we're going to need user accounts, ratings, reviews, all sorts of uh, mechanisms such as that. But what we just realized after getting that advice from those early adopters who said it only needs to be slightly better than the WhatsApp group, we realized that ratings and reviews was way better than a WhatsApp group. So when we launched, we said, what is just this, the minimal path of things that you have to do to be able to give away food? You have to be able to photograph it and add it to the app. Someone else has to be able to see it and request it. They have, then have to be able to take it down and that's it. And so that's all we built. Cool. And so how did you get it up to 2.8 million users from, <laughs> from there? Blood, blood sweat, and tears. <laughs> you're still looking I, quite, I you're you, not I looking think, too, you're not I, looking too I shattered. Don't you, I don't think you were, uh, I don't think you were on the street corner. I mean, like still doing the street corner. No, no we weren't. Although we did, we did do a lot of sort of hyper-local community oriented stuff in the early mm -hmm. days, because that was really important to find our early adopters, kind of find our tribe. We had to go to where they were and do things that they would like. So we, we did sort of host community potlucks and, and, and stuff like that. So we did do quite a lot of um, non-scale stuff that doesn't scale in order to just prove out the model and refine it and, and get it working. And from then, we've, we have raised several rounds of investment. And so we've been able to build out a team. We've been able to move the product on significantly we've been able to invest in social media and performance marketing and all that kind of good stuff okay and then traditional just basically traditional traditional yeah. and it was i mean you mentioned putting in your your savings did you have enough security to, to feel that even if it failed you'd have something to fall back and you had you had young children no. and, and you blew your life savings <laughs> and no. and you look no. you, you look quite normal and rational <laughs> no no we didn't we well we that was so we knew we incorporated on the 9th of february and we knew that we had until the we, we basically built a very detailed spreadsheet each of us of our family's burn rate line by line by line down to every sort of 10 pounds and we knew that we would both have to go out and sort of get a proper job if we hadn't made a go of Olio by the 31st of December. Mm -hmm. And so that, that clock started ticking on the 9th of February, mm -hmm. which we always knew that the business model of Olio was going to require to monetize. We we're going to have to be at some degree of scale. And so we knew that we were not going to be able to break even or do anything like that in that sort of short time period. So we knew that we'd have to fundraise. Given that we'd have to fundraise, that meant that we really needed the app out kind of by that summer. So we sure. had at least a few weeks worth of data to raise from in order to have that all closed so that we didn't have to go back and get proper jobs. And then, you know, I mean, I've had to remortgage my house <laughs> several times, you know. I, mean, I, I don't want to ask cash, a personal, but, but are, are they like if you're if you're married or like, does that is that a common decision? Like how much of that do you get your uh, 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 do your spouses or partners? Did they, they sign on? on did they get a did they get a say? <laughs> I mean, like, well, it sounds yeah. like <laughs> well, so, I mean, that that was the additional, I guess, a wrinkle, which is that both Sasha and I were the breadwinners for our family as well. So, um, yeah, there was, I guess there was a lot, a lot of pressure, but we were absolutely committed to doing it. 
and awesome. I, I, and I think that's why that first stage, I use that phrase kind of getting the fire in your belly, that was critical. You know, in our moments when we were wavering, I remember talking to someone and they said, wow, if, if you're not going to fix this problem, <laughs> you've learned everything about it, you know, then who is? And I thought, well, yeah, good point. We've just, we've, we've just somehow got to make this happen. Mm. Was that a particular moment? I was, I was wondering about that, that. Was there a moment when you suddenly realised that this might be the thing you were almost like born to do, right? Because it wasn't I your think, life's plan until... It, no, was it a... wasn't. It wasn't. So I, I think there's a really important point, actually, for anyone who is listening to this who might be super early on the entrepreneurial journey or maybe hasn't even started it, uh, I never grew up aspiring to be an entrepreneur. I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was. I felt because there were just no role models that looked in any way, shape or form like me, uh, you know, and I look back and sort of can't quite believe I did my MBA at Stanford in the heart of Silicon Valley and still didn't go to a single entrepreneurship class because it, it just didn't feel like it was something for me. Mm. Um, and that kind of blows my brains because if I now that I understand myself and who I am and the type of person, it's almost inevitable that I was going to be an entrepreneur. But and, and that's why I'm so passionate about the importance of diversity and the importance of role models in the world of entrepreneurship, because the world's biggest problems are only going to get solved by um, truly diverse talent. So you um, you went you had a very prestigious top class education. You went to Cambridge and Stanford. Yep. Um, what do you, th how important do you think education is for, uh, for somebody that wants to be an entrepreneur or did you learn, did anything that you learned through your, through your, through your education, did it guide you or did you get your, did you get your, did you sort of like earn your. Yeah, I, well, I think I'm going to say something a little bit contentious here and I apologize for it. I think probably the greatest value of our education was the badge of approval it gave Sasha and I that enabled us to fundraise despite the fact that we're female. Ah, so at that point, at that point. So, purely... uh, so th I think that's been incredibly valuable mm -hmm. um, because there are just so many biases against female founders. So obviously in, in the UK, less than 1% of venture capital funding goes to female founded businesses. 89% goes to male founded businesses uh, and 10% goes to mixed teams. Um, so there are that's a ton crazy. of, ton of, um, biases both um yeah in your way so so i think having those sort of badges of honor have been incredibly powerful and have forced people to take us seriously when perhaps they might not have otherwise taken us seriously i will forever be indebted to stanford for giving me the best co-founder in the world which is sasha <laughs> so with, without right. that we wouldn't be here um and i think uh my undergrad sort of degree at Cambridge taught me to take a lot of very complex information and thoughts and to distill them down to their essence and communicate them really clearly. And that is an invaluable skill in business. Yep. And I'm interested in how competitive you are. Uh, this is, do you, do you, are you a good loser? <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I'm sort of thinking back on my childhood right now because my kids are reaching the stage where we can now start playing board games with them, and they are terrible losers. Is that is that is that because you is that because you're you is that because you win? That's because you're winning, right? Do you let them win? That's <laughs> one of my favorite questions. No, exactly. <laughs> Neither do I. I never let them win. No. No, exactly. So, so may, may, maybe that's the answer to your question. Um, but I, I, I sort of so think, your kids, 
your kids are losers. Yeah. <laughs> In 20 yeah. years' time, they'll listen to this and they'll, yeah. <laughs> they'll be horrified. I, I am actually blushing now at the thought. Um, <laughs> I sound like a heartless parent, but I... I, I <laughs> I think it's an important life lesson to learn how to lose, actually. Um, mm -hmm. But, but you, don't, you don't have so much experience of that personally, though. No, well, I do. I do. Um, whilst I have many ways in which I have won, and I recognise the enormous amount of privilege that I have had um, in my life, um, similarly, I have dealt with an enormous number of challenges and difficulties and barriers. So, yeah, I'm definitely used to... I, Tessa, I, I'm, I'm very conscious... Yeah, I'm very conscious of your time. I know you, you booked some time. I, I do want to ask one of my favorite questions, though, at the end, yeah. is how, how um, so, you know, you had this, I mean, you were, on the, you were on the street corners yelling to people to come to sign the petition and give them the email addresses so they could hear about the app. How much of your journey do you attribute to your just hard work and, you know, grit and determination and skill and talent? And, and how much of it do you, do you contribute to luck? Um, I hate to give a sort of sitting on the fence answer, but both are required. So you need the, the foundation of the grit and determination and hard work, because you're not going anywhere without that. But then the reality is you need a, a healthy sprinkling of luck coming on top of that. But actually, I think that much luck or if you kind of do the five whys on how that luck emerged, often it originates in something that you did some time when you kind of put yourself out or gave something to someone. So both Sasha and I are kind of big believers in karma. We just believe that if you put a lot of good stuff out into the world, then eventually good stuff will come back to you, even if it's not directly linearly. Um, so I think luck is, is critical, but I do also think you make your own luck. I'm really appreciative of everything you've shared with us and I, I want to come back to diversity and, and you've mentioned it a couple of times and the challenges yes. of being a, a, a female founder, co-founder and if anyone out there is listening whether they're a man or a woman or you know gender undefined is there anything you'd like to share just a, an extra thought you haven't had an opportunity to share yep. in terms of the, what they should do in order to try and help address this problem? this issue well the first thing i would say is that and, and your diversity is needed the world needs you with your diverse perspectives and I, I talk a lot about diversity from a gender perspective but it's equally important from an ethnicity perspective a neurodiversity perspective a socioeconomic perspective all of these things are really really important and i find when i kind of do you know the five whys on why are we in this mess with the climate crisis? I ha it actually sort of the root cause comes down to a lack of diversity in positions of power. And that is why we're, humanity is in the mess that we're in today. So the first thing I'd say is that your diversity, whilst it feels like your greatest barrier, will, I promise you, be the greatest source of your strength. Then in terms of more, much more practical stuff, uh, if you look for a video by a lady called Dana Kanzi, I think it is, where it's an, an HBR video, I believe, and she talks about how female founders are asked prevention questions and male founders are asked promotion questions. So prevention questions are all about the downside. What happens if Google comes along and destroys you? What happens if this terrible thing happens? What happens if that terrible thing happens? How on earth are you ever going to make money? The promotion questions that the men are asked is, how big can this get? How fast can we go? How can we scale it? 
And the great, and, and she points out that this is something that female founders face. Um, and I can attest to that. But the great solution she gives is that you need to answer prevention questions with promotion answers. That's a really invaluable piece of advice. I would also say that something Sasha and I did in our fundraising deck, we realized we've raised now four times and we re realized sort of fairly early on all these biases that were going on about us being female founders. And so we put our credentials right up front as the very first slide with a whole bunch of logos. <laughs> um, and that was really important because I think that said, you need to take us seriously. Well, thank you. If there's anything... I can do to help. I'm sure I'm speaking for Kimon as well. If there's anything we can do to help to get the word out, I, um, I know you're, everyone listening to this should download the app if they haven't already. Yes, please. <laughs> um, use, use the app. But beyond that, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of, um, you know, how I can promote what you're doing and, and your co-founder and the app in my communities. And possibly I won't go into the details now, but I just think that, you know, this is such a good idea. It's changing the world. And obviously as you move towards lending, not just food, but other items increasingly and lending, not lending and borrowing, not just sharing food. This has the potential to have an enormous global impact. So we're, we're enormously impressed. Yeah, I mean, our, our ambition is an unashamedly bold one. We want a billion oleoers by 2030. And the reason for that is really simple. If humanity is to stand any chance whatsoever of mitigating the worst effects of the climate crisis, we have to solve the problem of food waste at scale. Project Drawdown released their latest data last year, which identified reducing food waste as the number one most important thing humanity can do to mitigate the climate crisis. It came above electric cars, above solar power, and above a plant-based diet. So um, yeah, we really, really appreciate anybody's efforts to help spread the word. There's a ton of information on our website about how you can do that. If you know any food businesses that want to get to zero food waste locations or corporate canteens, again, please do reach out to us. And if you are writing or have contacts in the media, we're always looking for opportunities to spread the word. Tessa, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Tessa. Super impressive, Thank you. super impressive person and story.